that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 721 for March 31st, 2022. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Bart Bouchatz. We've got an installment of programming by Stealth, but it's another tidbit. This is tidbit four of why. How are you doing today, Bart? I am doing good. And I've just realized by recording it day early, we've avoided this show being a joke. Yeah, <laughs> well, he uh, nicely did this a day early uh, because my granddaughter, Sienna, is an April Fool's baby and she <gasps> lives up to the promise. Oh, she's just, she is hilarious. So That's brilliant. I get to spend her birthday with her instead of recording. So I really appreciate you doing this a day early. It's awesome. I am delighted to. And I, 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 while we're talking about, you know, family and fun stuff, uh, the Bouchots clan have become as Irish as is possible. I, my youngest, uh, Niece was born on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, perfect. perfect. Congratulations. Yeah. Well, my brother and my sister-in-law get the credit, but uh, it's... Uh, but you get just the fun parts. <laughs> that is true. I don't have to change any nappies. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yes, we the Bouchotses are proper Irish now with the Paddy's Day baby. So there we go. Oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. Well, I think the reason uh, we are going to do this particular tidbit is uh, that, I, I don't know, the programming by Stealth Audience probably hasn't heard about this very much because it's been a Nosilicast subject, but uh, my web server package of everything that makes up a web, uh, website got incredibly slow. It got slower and slower. And then as Bart would say, it fell over in a heap, I think would be a description. That would be what I'd say. Yeah. (laughs) The slowest page load I measured at one point was 41 seconds. Yeah. Two seconds is annoying. 41 seconds. And and more than anybody else, it's the worst for me because I go to it all the time. I mean, I'm in and out of that site constantly. You're writing content. Yeah. Oh, it was an absolute nightmare. And uh, between some uh, some great work by Bart and some, uh, we have to go with Yeoman's work by William Ooh. Reveal, we now have uh, the site down to, it's like a quarter of a second for a page load. Yeah. I just refresh it all the time. I, I just go hit it just because it's Just because so you can. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were actually things I wouldn't do because it's like, ugh. I can't test that. That's going to take me 10 minutes because yeah. I'm going to have to wait for it so much. So uh, William Reveal is a is a listener. He's a, a, a web developer guy, web uh, web manager, and a wonderful human being. So uh, because of him and Bart and the work they did, uh, we now have a great site. And uh, and we're going to talk about how that happened and all of the underpinnings and how this all works. Yeah, and right? there's, there's a second hook, right? So I, I definitely on one of your shows wanted to talk to you about what we did. And the reason it's here as a PBS tidbit is because there's a second hook for this. And the second hook is that we are about to venture into the server side. So everything we did is a glimpse at the future of where programming skills are taking us towards, right? Because we have been writing client-side software, and the closest we've come to acknowledging the existence of a server is that we made some Ajax calls to other people's servers. So we obviously know they exist right. because there's not other people's servers for things. But we haven't written anything to answer by ourselves, right? So we used Ajax to ask someone else what the weather is and to ask someone else what the exchange rate is. But those someone else's, they wrote software. That software is server-side code. So there's a okay. server, right? And your website right, right. is WordPress which is a content management system or a CMS. So, you know, the visitor sees HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. So from the visitor's point of view, your website could be a whole bunch of hand-coded HTML. 
that is entirely plausible with what the user sees. Now, you would have to go in there every week and every page that lists all the different episodes under every category would have to go manually put in a link. It would be horrible. <laughs> it would be really, really horrible, but it is it is doable. It is plausible. But of course, that's not how your website hangs together. Your website is, in fact, a very complex web app. It's a, an instance of the extremely popular open source content management system, WordPress, which I believe powers a third of the internet. Might be even higher than that, but yeah, it's it, a lot. It's a darn, darn lot. So what that means is that there is a server. So this is actually a really good excuse for us to have a little bit of a peek under the hood about what's actually going on on the server side. We're not going to learn how to write WordPress, but it is nonetheless good. And WordPress, conveniently enough, well, actually, it's not convenient. It's exactly the reason we want to do PHP next is because if you want to write WordPress plugins and themes and stuff, you need to write them in PHP. And that's why, that is one of the whys that programming by stealth is going the PHP route. So, you know, it is PBS adjacent, but adjacent, not, you know. So that's the reasoning. So I'm actually going to build this story up. I think I'll try to string it into a narrative. I'm going to actually build it up as a story. And the very first thing to start with is that we are going to have a problem today. Because the word server is overloaded. So a server is three things these days. It is a piece of hardware that has a CPU and some RAM and some disks and plugs into power socket and an Ethernet cable. And it is a piece of software that listens for something and answers. And it is a virtual version of the first one. It is a virtual machine running an OS and everything, but not on its own hardware. So physical servers host virtual servers, host database servers and web servers, which are actually apps. So <laughs> server, server, server. Ah! So I'm going to try remember to be specific as we go here, but I'm going to mess it up. So help. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll see. I think we can get there. Yeah. So the first thing is physical servers are out of the equation here, right? Even when we last moved your site, which must be close to a decade ago, we were already in the world where virtual servers were the norm. So podfeet.com has been powered by a single virtual server for a long time. So physical servers, at least, are someone else's problem. So we're only confused between whether it's a server as in a thing with an operating system or a server as in a piece of software. So we're going to try keeping straight. So a web okay. server is a piece of software that listens for incoming HTTP requests from the network and replies to those requests with HTTP responses. So something asks it a question in the HTTP protocol, it does some magic, and then out comes an answer in the HTTP protocol, and that is a web server. It is a software entity. So when you visit podfee.com, your browser connects to the piece of software that is the Allison's web server running on the virtual machine that is Allison's server, and it receives a request, and then it responds with a bunch of HTML, and that HTML probably contains some links and some style sheets and some JavaScript and stuff, so it has to go and fetch all of those other bits in turn, one by one, so one page load, lots of requests, but again, it's just HTTP, tell me something, okay, tell me something, okay. So it's just over and back. Now, the user doesn't realize how much has gone into calculating that HTML, right? And you, when you go to your, web, to your admin page, you're getting something very similar, 
because it's just you're going on an HTTP and the web server, you're sending in a request and it's answering. It's just giving you an answer with way more buttons. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's a web interface to an app under the hood. Exactly. And then there's another third way that there is interaction with Podfeed, which is through apps. So WordPress provides an API endpoint, as they're called. Now, that's just a URL that speaks something not HTML. In the case of WordPress, it speaks XML. A lot of things these, be, these days speak JSON, which is why when we were doing the querying the weather API, we were getting back JSON because they were, it was a right, modern right. API. But WordPress is, I believe the phrase is venerable, which is a polite way of saying old. So <laughs> WordPress is a venerable app. And when WordPress came into being, XML was a shiny hotness, not JSON. It hadn't been invented yet. So that's why the, um, the API for WordPress talks XML. And so when you use Mars Edit, which is your editor of choice, it's talking XML to your server, the app, over HTTP. So it's sending HTTP requests over and back, but instead of getting handed HTML, it's getting handed XML. Just so people understand, so in Mars Edit, I write the blog posts, I drag images in, I, I put in links, I put in the, uh, the categories to tell you it's a blog post versus it's a podcast episode, and I put in tags, and it speaks the XML back over to podfeed.com and shoves it all in there. It's basically just a nicer, easier place to edit. Exactly. So it's functionally, it's it, like it doesn't have quite all the features of the admin interface because it can't. You can't control plugins and stuff, right? You can't use Mars Edit to right. change your plugin config. But in terms of authoring, it's pretty darn feature complete. And it does a lot more than I can do from the web interface. Actually, in terms of writing, to be able to put in, uh, there's macros and stuff built in. So yeah. you notice how I always always got figures that show the little title underneath, and it's italicized. That's all part of a macro. I'm not doing any of that by hand, and I literally can't do that that way in uh, in WordPress. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it is a very nice editing environment. Um, so when right. I was sort of talking about feature complete, I sort of meant in terms of you know the headline stuff. Can save yeah. post, can edit post, can add image. Right. I think you can do pages too, but yeah, that's about it. Yeah. So, you know, but you know, anyway, it's, you know, it's so. But over on the WordPress side, I've got plugins that can do backups for me. I've got yeah. one that backs up my web server over to Dropbox. So it's that API is, is really, really rich. Exactly. So at the end of the day, whether it's Mars Edit talking XML from back or whether it's your web browser talking HTML and JavaScript and CSS and JPEG files over and back, at the end of the day, they're HTTP requests going from some sort of client to the software that is your web server, and it's calculating an answer. Ah, okay. Right. <laughs> that needs right. explaining. <laughs> there's, there's an awful lot hiding in that word there. <laughs> And then the hand-waving began. Exactly. Like, that is some serious hand-waving. So the first distinction we have to draw is between so-called static content and dynamic content. And in terms of our programming by Stealth Hat, everything we have done has been static content. So static content means that what the server does to answer the request is it finds a file that matches the URL and it returns the content of that file completely unchanged to the client. So if the URL points at an image, that image is sitting on your server as a file and the web server app says, ah, oh, yeah, that URL, you know, strip away the pod feet bit, look, you know, stick it in the right folder on the server. Ah, okay, there it is. It's a JPEG. I will take that JPEG and I will give it back to the browser. Unchanged. It is static content. 
Right. Now, dynamic content, what actually happens is the URL maps to an executable. It doesn't map to a file you return. It maps to a piece of code. You run the code, and the output of the code is what goes back to the browser. Okay. So that's your distinction. So either the content goes back or the result of executing the content. So if it has to go do something other than fetch and return. Correct. Then that's executing some code. Exactly. So it's either get this or run this and tell me the answer. Okay. So that's the difference in dynamic content, static content. So that is that is a Did very big difference. Dynamic content be, I don't do this because I find it really annoying, but when you go to a website and it's got a scrolling carousel of images going by, would that be dynamic content? No, you could write that in CSS and JavaScript, right? Remember, this happened, This is on the server side. So the server okay. fetches okay. some HTML right. and JavaScript and gives it back to the browser. The browser, the, the browser will never know whether it was dynamic or static because it's irrelevant to the browser. Right. It's getting the answer. The question is, now that we're on the web server side, now that we've swapped our hats, how did the web server know what to answer with? Did it just fetch and return, or did it fetch, execute, return result? Okay. But it's entirely okay. contained within the server. It's entirely about that hand-waving, do something and give you know, and return it back to the client. So when a web server receives a particular URL, it uses its configuration to figure out what to do with that URL, right? A URL has arrived to me. I'm a web server app. I now need to do something with that URL. I have a giant big configuration file that tells me how to do things. So it looks at the URL and it looks at its config and it determines that it's going to do one of four possible things, right? Every URL will map down to one of four possible actions. Either it's in the cache. So Web servers can choose to run a cache and they will have rules for how to make stuff stale and all that kind of stuff. So if a server is running a cache, the URL could map into a cache hit and the server will just simply take it from its cache and return it to the client. Now, okay. you're not doing that on your server. But many web servers do that. So that is one of the things a web server can do. The URL can map into the cache and then the server can very efficiently answer. Oh, great. I don't have to do any work. Here you go. I have that right here sitting in RAM. I already calculated that. I already... Exactly. I did the work. Okay. All good. The other thing is that the URL can map to a local file. So that's your static content. So the URL maps to a JPEG. The URL maps to a .css file. The URL maps to a .html file. The URL maps to, say, a .xml file that contains a podcast feed. That's a local file. So it just takes the file and it returns its content. So that's, again, easy. The third thing is the URL can map to an executable file. So in other words, I map it to a file that ends in, say, .php which tells the web server if it's been configured as such, ah, I know what to do with you. I run you and I return the answer because it ends in .php. So WordPress is doing a lot of that. Yeah. Every URL that... Everything's written in PHP. Correct. WordPress, right? Correct. So every URL that lands in your WordPress install that is not one of a few static assets is going to end in .php and is going to result in the web server executing that file to calculate whatever it is the browser asked for. And then the last thing that can happen is that the uh, config can tell the server, um, yeah, I actually can't answer this. I'm going to ask that guy over there. 
it can pass the request, or to use the jargon, it can reverse proxy the request to another web server. So it can basically, you ask server number one, and server number one doesn't answer you, it just says, hmm, hmm. And meanwhile, when it, when it turns us back to you while you're still waiting, and it says, Oi, help! And it hands Oi. the request off to another web server. It does one of those four things. It answers back to the first web server, and it then answers back to the client. It says, yeah, sure, here you go. So it, pre- it pretends it knew the answer. Correct. It's actually getting Bob to help. Exactly. Now, it's called a reverse proxy because it's the opposite of using a proxy to hide your, your location on the internet. With a proxy, the browser is proactively saying, you over there, get this for me. With a reverse proxy, the browser is utterly ignorant of what has happened. The browser has asked what it thinks is a server, and the server has gone on and asked someone else, and then the server has answered as if it knew all along. So that's why it's a reverse proxy. It's proxying from the other okay. direction. Okay. And put a pin in this, because this is becoming spectacularly important in the modern web. This was irrelevant to before change pod feet. There was no reverse proxying going on in before change pod feet. And now, frankly, it's reverse proxying all the way down to make your website go. And that is quite normal on the internet mm. these days. It, reverse proxying is very much a thing. Be- and the reason reverse proxying is a thing is because web servers, so the software of a web server, you have sort of two kinds. You have your Swiss Army knife. I can do everything. And I can do it okay. And that's Apache, right? Apache is literally the oldest of the web servers. And it can do... If someone's dreamed of making a web server do it, there's an Apache module to do it. Like, it can do CalDAV to to pretend to be a calendar server. It, It just... You dream of it, someone's written a, a, uh, an Apache module for it. So Apache... Was Apache the new hotness when I started 17 years ago? It wasn't new, but it was the hotness. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Apache was the new hotness, like when Tim Berners-Lee was just vaguely having an idea. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> it's, it's honestly, goodness, it is ancient. Uh, and it just, it has all the features, right? But it's not, it's, it, it can do everything grand. It's not bad at these things, but it's great at nothing. Now, this makes very okay. some people very upset. Okay. But I look, I administer these things for a living. This is very much my bailiwick. I have a very strong opinion on this. Apache is brilliant at nothing. It's grand at everything and brilliant at nothing. <laughs> Jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, to be honest. But there are other web servers out there who, because each web server can choose to do one of those, you know, there are four things a web server can do. Some of them do one of those four. And so a great example of one that does one and only one of those is Varnish, which is probably the most popular open source web cache. And you put Varnish in front of your website and all it can do is check its cache and reverse proxy for, for help. It can't access files. <laughs> can't do anything else. Can't do anything else. All it can do is get it in its cache or ask for help. But you put it in front of your web server. So um. every single request is basically being reverse proxied, right? Because the first place that arrives is Varnish, which actually knows nothing. All it does is check its cache or ask for help. Check its cache or ask for help. So all the work is actually happening behind Varnish. So immediately we're into this onion layer kind of a setup, right? Now, you don't have varnish, but you can put a mental pin on the concept of caching as well, because we do get there in the end. So the other question here is, where do database servers come in? Because I was listening to the Nocilla cast, and Alison was definitely complaining about her database and something about funny characters getting all borked. 
Databases were definitely in this story. Found some more yesterday. Nope. Just sitting in a blog post, just hanging out, strange apostrophes. Lovely. (laughs) So if our web server does item number three of possible things, as in execute some code and return the result, well, execute some code really could be anything, right? And one of the things that a, say, a content management system needs to do is it needs to store data in a structured and organized way so that it can be quickly and efficiently queried. And we have we have an app for that. It's called a database server. And so WordPress is powered by a database server. And so a database... Let me interject for a little bit to... to uh, when you look at podfee.com, every blog post I've written is in that database. Every every uh, tag I've put in, every category, but every single character I've typed, mm-hmm. that's in that database. It is, along with every comment everyone has ever made. Yeah, yeah. Like that is the heart. That is the that is the content of Podfeet. Is is that database? Yeah, and it's in a highly structured format so that it's very heavily indexed, which means that the code can query it really efficiently because it's having to search through everything you've ever typed. Right that. When you ask it to show the front page of Podfeed, it is filtering down every character you have typed in the last two decades, and it is giving back only the subset that are the most recent posts or that match whatever it is you've set up on your front page, which is a page which is also dynamically generated. So it's basically... Well, now I feel sorry for it, for bemoaning how slow it got. I right. Mean, come on, it was doing a lot of work. Absolutely it is. And it's, we take it for granted that we have invented this kind of a data structure and this kind of software to manage that data structure, but it's actually amazing. Databases are amazing things. They, they really are. So a database server, like our web server, is a piece of software that listens for incoming connections. Now, in the case of a database, it can listen on the file system through a special file called a socket, which is it's like a funnel pretending to be a file. And when you write to the file, what you're actually doing is speaking down through a telephone into the database server. And it's going, ah, understood. And it writes to the file, which is actually just spitting it back to you. So that's, that's what a socket is. It's, a, it's one of those Linuxy things. Or it listens on the network for incoming connections on port. Oh, I forget the MySQL port, but it doesn't matter. It's listening on the network for queries coming in. And instead of talking HTTP, it talks the standard query language or SQL. So you send a query to a database server in SQL, it does its thing and it answers you back in SQL. And in fact, for our purposes, we are going to pretend that the word database is synonymous with the word relational database. And that the word database server is synonymous with the word, not the word, the giant big T acronym, Relational Database Management System, or, or DBMS, which is one of those rare things where it's actually harder to say the algorithm. <laughs> you mean the acronym? The acronym, right, or DBMS. It just, it, I don't know, it makes my tongue hurt every time. But I, I really want to express my utter, like, respect for the amazingness of, of, of or DBMSs. They are just the Rolls Royce of data storage. Like, if you want to go deep in this, there's something called the ACID criteria, and basically they promise magic. Like, you can have a database query that updates five tables, and it will do it as an atomic action that either all five succeed or zero of the five succeed, guaranteed. It guarantees atomicity. Like, it's just so cool what it can do. 
But there's a price to pay for all of that coolness, which is the fact that uh, databases are resource hogs. Like, they're working hard to do all that. And so actually, the reason I'm saying pretend there's only one kind of database is because that isn't true anymore. A lot of services that are not financial, that are not, that basically where it's okay if the data's wrong for a while. So a classic example is social media. A lot of these were invented by the early social media companies. Twitter had a big part to play in the invention of these NoSQL databases are called. And no SQL? Yeah, what's the opposite of an SQL database? A no SQL database. It's not a particularly good name for them, but anyway, the other name for them is key value stores. But they basically accept that their data could be inconsistent with itself for a while. All they care about is that eventually it'll be grand. So they basically, they sacrifice it being immediately right, immediately, you know, there is never a point where you have something inconsistent or they don't care about that kind of stuff as long as, you know, in the next five minutes, it'll all be in sync with itself. So you talk about like whether Allison knows that a tweet went out versus Bart knows whether a tweet went out. Right, exactly. And so you might have you might have a retweet showing. So you might see that five people retweeted a tweet that's actually been deleted and that before it was okay. deleted, 11 people actually retweeted it. Okay. And if you were okay. to wait long enough then you will see, let's say it wasn't deleted, so that you will see the 11, and then you might see the deletion later. Eventually, it'll all add up. And you can end up with a tweet that shows you that it's a reply, and you click on the reply that you have seen, and it says, that doesn't exist. It's like, but you told me it existed, so half your database thinks it exists, but it's gone. How's that possible? It's because the data's inconsistent. But it will sort itself out. And And those are called NoSQL databases? NoSQL covers a lot of this type of database. Okay. Uh, and they are they are they are they are they are the the hotness. But they're only useful for places where it's okay for the world not to be in sync with itself. Basically, if you're okay having, you know, um things be inconsistent for a while, then you can do this. But if you're like writing a web, you know, like a, a shopping cart, like Amazon cannot be run off a NoSQL database like this. It would not do to be telling you that stuff is for sale and that we've taken your money, but actually it's not for sale anymore and we've lost your money. Or we took your money anyway. Frowned upon. Yeah, it's frowned (laughs) upon, right? So, yeah, that is... I actually have a problem right now where they gave me my money back, but then accidentally delivered the thing that they gave me the money back for. You can't put money back into Amazon. You can't give them the money back. (laughs) Oh, Wubbums, the richest man in the world will be a little bit poorer. I'm sure he'll live. Anyway. So, you know, for our purposes, it's ODBMSs, and that's all that exists. And in fact, to be a little bit more, you know, to, to help people know what we're talking about, if you are living in corporate world, there is an undisputed king of the hill, Oracle, right? When it comes to the creme de la creme of databases, it's Oracle. And in the open source world, by far the most popular database is MariaDB, which is actually a fork of MySQL or MySQL, because Oracle bought MySQL and the open source world were like, no, 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 no. That's like Microsoft buying, say... Um, GitHub? No, no, it's worse than that. No. That'd be like Microsoft buying Canonical so that Microsoft would own Ubuntu. Okay, right. It's got to be forked. It's got to be forked. And because it was all open source, it was. And they wanted to keep the M for reasons that will become apparent very shortly. So it ended up being called MariaDB. 
And because it's all open source, a lot of the cool hotness in MariaDB is actually feeding back to MySQL, which is kind of strange that we fork from Oracle because we don't trust Oracle, but because it's open source, Oracle still get to benefit from our fork. But hey, that's open source. That's, you know, it's a feature, not a bug. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting. So anyway, uh, and for those of you in the open source community who would like to have all of the power, complexity, and stress of Oracle, there is Postgres. Postgres or PostgreSQL is how it's spelled, but it's pronounced Postgres, is it does things the Oracle way. It is stupendously powerful. It is an amazing piece of software, and I detest it. I've had the misfortune of administering (laughs) it once too often. But it's amazing. But I hate it. (laughs) Anyway, so... Let's let's bring this all back down to earth a bit here. So before we start our work, how is Alison's website running? How was podfeet.com being a website? So the old way was a so-called single-server LAMP stack. So there was one virtual machine, which was running Linux, or to be specific, CentOS. So that's the L in LAMP. It was running the Apache web server software. So that is the A in LAMP, Apache. It had a local copy of the MySQL software. I believe it was MariaDB, but I don't remember off the top of my head. But anyway, one of those two running locally on the same virtual machine. Um, And Apache was executing the WordPress PHP code using PHP underscore CGI, I believe. Right. I think it's a dash, believe it or not. PHP dash CGI. Probably. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Apache was executing the PHP code for us using one of Apache's 20 kabillion possible modules. So that gives us LAMP, Linux, Apache, MySQL, and PHP. And it was all running on one virtual machine, which meant that from your point of view, there was no difference in saying that my virtual machine, my server, runs a LAMP stack or podfeet.com is running on a LAMP stack. Those two were the same because it was one server running running the entire website. So it really didn't matter whether the LAMP applied to the website or the server. But actually, the LAMP always applied to the website. It was just a distinction without a difference. Right. And I've been comfortable there, Bart. I was happy knowing, because I could, I have quoted this lamp stack description for decades. I've known what it meant, and I've been able to say it with confidence. And then you and Bill got in there, and now everything's just different. Well, at the very end, there's only one letter different, but yet, strangely, a lot different as well. So... <laughs> yeah, only one different, one letter different if you spell it wrong. <laughs> yeah, we get there. That's kind of funny. Um, okay. So... That sort of a setup, right? One virtual machine running everything that actually works really well for small websites. And it's very simple to to understand. It's simple to administer. An awful lot of the internet is running on one VM, running a, a full LAMP stack all by itself. But you committed the mortal sin of becoming too popular. <laughs> Which I, I didn't, in the middle of all this, it didn't immediately occur to us that that's what was happening. When things hit the fan, our first instinct was a DDoS, right? We looked into what could we do. We kept we kept changing things, and it wasn't changing the problem, right? Or it wasn't change. Yeah, the problem was still occurring, and it was uh, as Steve said, it's coming from inside the machine. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think you was working really hard. Yeah, and no, I, I think I may have been slightly ahead of you in believing that it really was just load because you were convinced there was something malicious going on longer than I was. And 
we were both we both started off on the wrong place and we both ended up in the right place. But I, I think we had a differential in timing. And I think the main well, it reason never occurred to me that it had gotten more popular. That that didn't that didn't cross my my test. You know, I didn't think about that. Well, I think the reason is because when a website becomes stressed, it behaves in a counterintuitive way. Because you expect it to be like an engine or something, you know, it's just going to slow down gradually. But it didn't. There was a. It would collapse. It would go a little bit slow, a little bit slow. Poof, right. It would like it just. It didn't go. You know. Well, this year it's ten seconds. You know, this year it's two seconds, and next year it's four seconds, and next year it's six seconds. It was like last year it was grand. Now it's forty-two seconds. Right, right. Well, and day to day, it would do that. It would be fine. It, well, fine being like six seconds, which is an eternity. Yeah. And then suddenly it would be 40 seconds. But the thing that really confused me was when we doubled the number of CPUs on my virtual CPU, and that did not fix it. So all, it was at hundred, like 98% usage. We doubled the CPUs, and it cranked back up to 98% again. And that's when I was really confused. And can you give your funnel analogy you gave me, your bottle of wine? Well, it's a so it is kind of like a funnel, right? So as long as so traffic to a web server is always bursty, so there's always a bit of queuing going on, and so the queue is like a funnel, right? So you're you know there's random amounts of water splashing at your web server, and it can only digest so much at once. That's the small end of the funnel, and in the normal run of things, you know the the content of the funnel will go up and down and up and down and up and down a bit. But when the funnel begins to back up, you never it never gets to catch up with itself, and so it gets slower and slower and slower. And then you get a feedback loop because you, what does a user do when they're getting a slow response? They click refresh, and they've now added more water into the funnel. And the slower your site gets, the more frustrated your users get. And so I have seen this so many times with my work hat on where a site is, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And then you hit a tipping point and it's not just a little bit dead. It just falls over. It, is, it catastrophically collapses. And it, it is a feedback loop. And because you're on one server, everything's fighting for the same resource. So if there's too many people waiting, then the web server is waiting on the database server, but the database server is also waiting on the web server for other things. And the two of them, everything's waiting on everything else. It's all on the one machine. So all of these things are circular weights and the whole thing just ties itself into a giant big knot. And if the database tries to work harder to get caught up, it's taking resources from the web server. If the web server works harder to try to get caught up, it's taking them away from the database. So you just can't win, right? Right, right. And so, it, and, the, and the bottom of the pile, poor Linux is going, oh my God, I can only hold so many network connections open at once. Do you see the queue? All these people are waiting. <laughs> uh, yeah, and eventually network, like the equivalent of the funnel finally overflowing is that the operating system just starts closing the connections and you get, oh, the website just never loads, right? Because Linux just goes, I, I can't talk to you all at once. <laughs> Go okay, away! <laughs> I can only. I'm, I'm picturing the person at the uh, at the the flight attendant at the gate. Yeah. The uh, the person at the airport gate who five flights just got canceled, and then they canceled another one and another one, and they just and all of a sudden they just go, okay, bye. Yeah. Phone us tomorrow. Phone us in the morning. We'll get you another flight. Yeah. Exactly. So, as your website grows, you. Initially, you don't even have to optimize it, right? You go yum, install HTTPD, you get Apache, and you don't even tweak it. 
Yum, install MariaDB. You don't even tweak it. And your website will be grand. No tweaking, it'll be grand. The next thing that will happen is you're going to start to hit your head off the ceiling. And at that point, you can get out of jail. You can get out of trouble by tuning everything. So you have a little bit of a look. You do a little bit of Googling. You get these rules of thumb that if you have this much RAM, you should set your MySQL up this way. There's an amazing open source script that sort of analyzes your database logs for MySQL and suggests config settings. So MySQL Tuner is a Perl script. We used that about three years ago to get you out of trouble. Hmm. And it bought us a couple of years. (laughs) <laughs> but it will only buy you a bit, right? And then I think about two years ago, we spent a whole bunch of time looking at that little square grid of Apache's worker processes and how many of them were in wait state and all that stuff. And that was yeah, us tweaking yeah, yeah. how Apache manages requests because Apache's multitasking model is um, venerable, I think is the phrase I've picked for the day. <laughs> and there is one Apache worker for every request. And so a browser comes in and asks for something. It gets a whole worker to itself. And that worker can do nothing but answer that one question. So if the database slows down, that worker gets held up. And it's sitting there hogging resources and doing nothing. So if you have too many workers, all your RAM is gone. They're all waiting on the database and you've stolen all the database's RAM. Right? So How does it get out of that? It, exactly. So the answer is that you actually get better performance by reducing the maximum workers. And what will happen is Apache will simply tell people to get stuffed for a while. Go pound sand, I can't deal with you. But it means that the ones that can deal with actually get an answer. And when you retry, you will get an answer too. And so instead of all those... You waited in line instead of both trying to shove through the door at the same time. Exactly, exactly. And so instead of all those resources being stuck in a circular weight, the resources are actually being used. So on average, over an hour, you get way more requests through. But you know, Bart, I had completely forgotten that we did that. We did. I forgot all about that because that was the last time it started slowing down. Yeah. And so we bought ourselves at least a year. I think we bought ourselves two years, to be honest, because it wasn't, it was pre pandemic and we're two years yeah. into this. Blech. So that's at least two years ago we did all that work and that bought us at least two years, if not three, right? So okay. there is, you know, you right. do buy things by optimizing. So you optimize MySQL. Now, Stuff like MySQL Tuner will get you a long way. But you know something? To actually truly optimize a database, you need to be a DBA, a database administrator. And that is a career. People become DBAs and they then get hired by the hour. And their hourly figure looks like my weekly wage. Right, A a fully (laughs) trained up DBA who actually knows what they're doing is, is worth thousands, plural, per hour. Of consulting time. Jeez. Yeah, like wow. If you can get those Oracle credentials, you, you're doing well. So the best we can do with MySQL Tuner is get MySQL acceptably tuned. Because we're not DBAs, we're amateurs having fun. Uh, Apache, we can do a better job of, but it's a lot of faffing about and you can only buy you so much. And then the next pain point you can hit is that little thing where I say, and Apache runs the PHP code. Oh, okay. Well, there's actually a lot going on there. So getting Apache to run the PHP code can be a more or a less efficient thing, and the difference can be spectacular. So Apache is a modular thing, which is why it's been able to exist for decades. So it calls them modules is the official name, but they're all named MOD underscore something. And so they're known as mods. But they're basically little plugins. 
right? And the oldest oh, okay. and most... Okay, they're not... Not like something was wrong and it needed to be modified. Their mods like a plugin modified. Exactly. So the core Apache okay. can do very, very basic stuff. And then you use mods to make it do all the other fancy pants stuff it can do. So when I say Apache can do anything, Apache with its joint big library of mods can do anything. Apache on its own could do almost nothing. So, so, okay. right, so core Apache is very skinny, actually. So the oldest game in town is Mod CGI. And it literally is like running a shell script. It looks at the first line of the script for the so-called shebang line, which will tell it if it's a PHP script or a Perl script or whatever. It will start a separate process. Remember, it's already a separate process because that's how Apache works. It will go and start another separate process as if you had just typed the command into the command line, run it, take the answer and return it. So that is the most inefficient possible. Two processes for every request. Right, Lots of wasted RAM, lots of wasted OS effort, very inefficient. But it does work. So if you're just, you know, poking about for fun, it'll work great. It can run anything. You could write your website in Bash. <laughs> I don't advise it, but you could. Um, so instead of having Apache do all of that inefficiency... We did eventually get like more specific. There's a PHP CGI. We were having a brief chat pre-show. I need to do some double checking, but I think mod PHP and PHP CGI are actually the same thing now that I think about it. But basically what they do is they allow that one Apache worker to run the PHP code without a second process. So they let... So slightly more efficient. Yeah. So they let the Apache worker do the PHP bit. So it's, it is definitely an improvement. Uh, so mod PHP is definitely a step above mod CGI. Um, but to be honest, they've both been well and truly superseded by the thing we're going to talk about later. So I'm going to, I'm going to tease you on that one. And then the fourth pain point I've already mentioned is you can't serve two masters. In other words, if both the database and the web server are stressed, every time the web server tries to take resources, it's killing the database. And every time the database tries to take resources, it's killing the web server. If you try to tune the config to give MySQL the resources it needs, you're taking them away from, PA, from Apache. If you give Apache what it needs, you're taking it away from MySQL. They're all on the same machine. It's all fighting with itself. It's going to end in tears. <laughs> right. it's, that's just the way it is, right? Okay. So... In the old world, before we went all cloudy and shiny, the answer to a problem like this, right, you would get to these pain points and you would eventually be funneled, be funneled down to a path where you would have no choice but to add more servers that you had to manage. In other words, another copy of Linux. So a whole other VM. And the first thing you would do is you would take VM number two, we move the database to VM number two, and we take it off... VM number one, so that VM number one now has one master. VM number one does Apache. And VM number two does my does MySQL MariaDB. And that will stop the two fighting with each other because you can then go and tweak the settings on one to make it happy and tweak the settings on the other and they won't fight with each other. And if one of them starts to run low, you can throw money at the problem and say, okay, you need twice as much RAM as the web server. Okay, you're a database server, you like RAM. Oh, I see you use almost no CPU because you're a database server. Okay, so I'll tweak your package and I'll put you on a package with very little CPU but loads of RAM. Oh, the web server, you are executing all of this code. You actually need lots of RAM and lots of CPU. Well, spend a bit more money and I'll throw lots of RAM and lots of CPU at you. And now they're both happy. And that will buy you a little bit more time. But you're now managing two copies of Linux. 
you now have twice the amount of VM updates to do, right? You you have two VMs, two bills, you've doubled your workload. But your website's working again. <laughs> okay. And they're not fighting with each other. And they're not they're fighting not with each RAM. other. Exactly. Now, in the real world, as you began to scale up, that would break down. The next break point would be the database server. One database server is generally not the best way to go. Particularly in the corporate world, you tend to have two workloads. You tend to have... The database is supposed to do a thing and the database needs to be regularly audited and reported on. And the reporting tends to destroy performance. So if you're running, say, Amazon and the database's job is to know all the products you're selling and you need hourly reports about what you're selling, if you have one copy, of, if you have that database server as one server, every hour you're going to take down your own website. to figure. Out, so to figure out how much you're selling, you're going to prevent yourself selling things. This is not good. Nice. Okay. So the answer generally is you start by clustering your database. So it pretends to be one database and you talk to it through one network connection, but under the hood, it's actually got multiple actual Linux servers doing the work. And there's different ways of doing it. So a very, very common first step is that you have one of them as read-write and that serves your website. So every time you someone takes an order, that's taking the orders and it's doing its thing. And every time it writes, it writes a copy to a second server that is a reporting server. And so it just has a copy of the data being kept up to date in real time. And whenever you need to do a, your hourly reports, you do your hourly reports on the, on the, the secondary and you'll destroy its performance, but who cares? There's no one using it apart from you. So you can get your reporting while your website still works. Okay, I guess that makes sense. And if you get bigger and bigger, you actually need to have so-called uh, primary, primary, primary doesn't work. Uh, in the olden days, before we became PC, we called them master, master versus master slave. Uh, I need to find the new lingo for that because it's not primary, primary, because they're not both primary. That doesn't make any sense. But they're, they're both in charge. Yeah, I guess it's sort of a, an anarchic commune because <laughs> everyone is everyone is everything. And so you just start scaling them up. And so you might have five database servers holding up your website, all working collaboratively together. But at this stage, you're managing one Linux operating system for the web server, five Linux operating systems for your database. Cluster. So that's six Linux operating systems. But now your website's suffering. So now you've got to say, okay, I need to have more web server brains. How do I do that? Well, the website shares the same code and files. So if I put them on one server, I can't make two servers unless I have some sort of infrastructure for cloning the files or I put the files on a file share and the, all the servers look at the same files. Now I have a file share as another Linux install. And now I put five web servers to manage the load. So that's now five more OSs, but how do I get the clients to go to those five servers? I can do DNS round robin, but that breaks sessions. I need a load balancer. I can't have one, that's a single point of failure. I need a pair of load balancers. So now we have two Linux servers, five Linux servers, five Linux servers, another. I've lost count, but we have well over 10 servers now. I'm really glad I didn't live through this. Yeah. Because that's not where we are today. Correct. That is why... So many people who do my job love the cloud. That's why we all went racing off to Azure and to AWS, because that's what it was saving us from. What I'm describing here it used to be my job, and now it isn't anymore. And I like my job much better now that this isn't my job anymore. So the cloud is the answer we came to. And Alison, you just got to skip over uh, and go straight to the cloud. 
<laughs> and we're going to always... hard enough without that, but right. okay. So, and the move to the cloud doesn't have to be all in one. It can be in pieces. And the lowest hanging fruit for this migration... So I've already stressed how hard it is to be a good DBA. Just don't. Don't even try to be a DBA. The first thing to outsource to the cloud is the job of managing database infrastructure. You can buy database as a service, which is a subset of something called PaaS is the buzzword, platform as a service. So you- now, this is where I I didn't even understand before we started down this path that my database could live somewhere other than the same physical server that was hosting my web server. Yeah. Looking back, it's like, well, why couldn't it? Yeah, because but it just never occurred to me. I thought they were, I thought the lamp was all tied together and the lamp had to all be together. Just yeah. didn't it? But actually, me. under the hood. Yeah, but under the hood, if you look in your PHP or in your WordPress config file, it says database server 127.0.0.1 port 3024, if memory serves. Well, all you really had to do was change 127.0.0.1, which is localhost, to my shiny database server I paid for. And I'll now talk to that database server over there. So it's just a network connection. So why can't it be to somewhere else? And so that is absolutely the lowest hanging fruit. And AWS, Azure, Cloud, um, not Cloudflare, DigitalOcean, Linode, all of these places will sell you databases as a service. And you basically say, you know, the more money you throw, the more of their physical servers underneath their virtual machines, underneath their MySQL service they're offering you that they're going to throw at the problem, right? Because at the end of the day, the cloud is other people's computers. But other people manage those computers. And it's their job to manage them, and they're really bloody good at it. And if you're buying databases as a service, part of that service is those really good DBAs that Microsoft or Amazon or Google or DigitalOcean are paying for. So what you're not just buying... You're not just buying MySQL, you're buying managed MySQL by experts. So you know it's going to be efficient, and you didn't have to do it. But I can't call them up and have them work on my database. Right, because the SQL is still you, right? You still decide what tables exist, you still decide what go, you know, what goes in and out. You're just talking so my to my problem it. if it's a UTF-8 yeah. uh, encoding yeah. problem. Dang it. Yeah, cuz they like they literally don't care. It's like is this thing answering SQL queries? Yes. Your problem. Right? It's a okay. platform. All you've paid And does it are they what are they in charge of making it do? Cuz once it's set up, how does it stop doing that? Well, that's what a DBA does all day long, right? To make it do that seamlessly and efficiently is actually an awful lot of work. It's just, you just don't see it. But all these years, nobody's been doing it. Well, that, uh, well I did a bunch of it to get your, your database tuned to an acceptable level. And remember what right. I said, you never go beyond acceptable when you do it yourself. Your, your database never ran as well as MySQL could run because I'm not a DBA. Okay. It just ran but okay. we moved it. When we moved it to a separate server, I paid for uh, for a separate server to run to do this. It didn't get any faster. Right, because that may not have been more the problems. bottleneck. Because Right, a website is a bit like having a pipe. Actually, it's a bit like having an artery with different blockages. And while, <laughs> you know, if you, have, if you need a triple heart bypass and you only get a single heart bypass, well, you still have two more blockages. 
right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Okay. And the thing is, it's the narrowest one determines your site's performance, right? Okay. So while we definitely, if nothing else had been a bottleneck, moving that database would have sped things up. And as soon as moving the database didn't speed things up, I was like, okay, we have other problems. Right, right. right. But it's not that it wasn't the okay. right thing to do. It's just that it, the slowest will always win. So great, that's the first thing out of the way. We just stop being a DBA. Not our problem anymore. We, And I say we throw money at it. I think I'm paying 15 euros a month for my database server that holds up all of my websites. Like all of my WordPresses are on one hosted database. And I think I pay 15 a month for it. Yeah, I know that doesn't sound like much to you, but that was the total of what I was paying before. True, and, and there I'm isn't a... That, and I'm still paying for my web server, and I mean, things kept adding up, but it's still worth it. True, but the thing is, if you had gone the old route and moved to a separate server for your database that you then had to manage yourself, which is the only other option to start splitting these things out so they stop fighting with itself, then you would have had the same bill because you would have gone from one VM to two VMs, so from 15 to 30, right. and you went from 15 to 30. The difference is right. you now have $30 and... Well spent. Yeah, I was going to say, and the expertise of a DBA who knows what they're doing instead of an amateur called Bart, right? <laughs> okay. So the next thing, so don't be a DBA anymore. Great. The next thing is to start, remember I said at the start that one of the things a web server can do is ask for help, just basically reverse proxy to someone else. Well, that's actually really important to us for going forward in this cloudy world. So... It's web servers all the way down. And by the time we get to the end of this conversation, you're really going to see why I say that. It really is web servers all the way down. So a single web request can be processed by many web servers, each of them adding a piece of functionality, and the end result is your website works. So like I said, Apache is an amazing generalist, but we don't need a generalist. We want something really efficient for hosting your website. So actually, one of the first things we did on the new infrastructure after we moved the database was we got rid of Apache and we replaced it with what I'm going to call the switchboard operator of web servers, Nginx. So this is where this is where uh, Bill was uh, pretty instrumental. <laughs> definitely. Uh, because Very instrumental. Extremely instrumental because this all coincided with me having almost no time which is terrible timing because your website was falling over in a heap and I was stressed out as all heck. And I knew what, I knew what the answer was. I, there are only 24 hours in a day. And Bill volunteered and gave many, many, many hours that I didn't have to give. And it made such a difference to everyone's stress. Uh, oh, it, it, it godsend. And he did it with a smile. Yeah, yeah absolute godsend. Um, now, he did this without a great deal of understanding of Nginx either. He had, he'd done it before, but he wasn't very familiar with Nginx. So that was uh, made it even more interesting. Yeah, and, you know, there was a bit of pinging him back because I was able to, to chime in like this, you know, voice from on high going, uh, by the by, here's a little piece of knowledge you should have. And then I could disappear off again, which... And I, then run away, run away. Yeah, which I felt very bad about. It's like, I'm just this guy coming in saying, you're doing it wrong, here's how you do it, and then sodding off again. <laughs> which is not my usual style, but anyway, needs must sometimes. So to understand what makes Nginx different to Apache, I think it's important to know where they came from. So Apache started life as a web server for hosting files, and then it developed the ability to execute code, and it developed the ability to become a reverse proxy. But ultimately, it started off in life as being a fetch a file and hand it back web server. 
And Nginx is pretty much the mirror opposite of Apache in that way. Nginx started off life as being a pure caching reverse proxy. That was the only thing Nginx could do. It had a cache and it could reverse proxy. And it has since learned how to serve files. But even now, Nginx cannot execute your PHP code. Oh, really? And yet, your website is made of PHP code and Nginx is hosting your website. So there's a piece missing here. But honestly, mm-hmm. right now, today, Nginx does three of the four things web servers can do. It does serve static files. We could use it for caching, but we don't. And it does the reverse proxying thing masterfully. The other big difference is the syntax of its config files, because Apache is venerable. So it has a syntax that looks like XML, only it isn't actually valid XML because it has C-style comments. And uh, it's it's very verbose. like. It, it takes a lot of typing to make Apache do things. Nginx has a really short syntax full of like little curly braces to group statements together into logical pieces. It feels like you're programming a web server rather than like you're trying to write a giant big HTML document to configure a server, which is what you do with Apache. So You know, the, I got to tell you, the config files made complete sense to me on Apache and they're still very mysterious to me on Nginx. I yes. have successfully regurgitated, well, not the first four times I tried to do it, but eventually successfully regurgitated uh, the right information to make the redirects work, for example. And th- I'm talking about things like where podfeet.com slash Patreon is actually patreon.com slash podfeet and uh, th- things like that. But that was, I look at it and I don't know what it's doing. Well, with my work hat on, I was dragged to Nginx kicking and screaming, having spent decades as an Apache admin. I was not a happy camper being made to change, but I needed to change. And after a month, I never wanted to see an Apache config file again. But they're very, very different. It's it, it's like going... It is honestly as big of a change mentally as going from being a DOS user to a an iOS user. Wow. Okay. It is it is a very, very, very different approach to everything. But if you speak good Nginx, you can do so much with so little typing. And the other big difference is you can look at an Nginx config and understand what it's doing. You can give me someone else's Nginx config and I will tell you what it does more quickly with less hair pulling than if you give me someone else's Apache config and ask me to pull it apart. Because it's always much easier to write your own config and know what you did because you did it. But the real test is being handed someone else's config. So if you said to me, right, Bart, a thousand euro, either you debug someone's Apache or you debug someone's Nginx. No brainer. Give me the Nginx config. And I I was a diehard Apache guy. But I can't read it at all yet. Yet. Right. Yet. Exactly. We, We will work on that. So... Nginx is supremely good at reverse proxying. Nginx is just a master at looking at a URL and having a simple set of rules to tell it what to do with that URL. And the things it can do is serve a file, use its cache, which we don't have set up, or reverse proxy for help. And so it cannot execute PHP code, and yet Nginx is holding up your PHP-powered WordPress website. Huh? This is where the... uh, Remember I told you to... Put a pin in the fact that there are better ways of executing PHP than making the web server do it with either mod CGI or mod PHP. Well, the answer is to throw another web server on the fire. 
there's a protocol developed specifically for the purpose of having web servers call for help at executing code. So the job of this protocol is for web servers to ask for code to be executed by another server. And the, so not another web server. You said throw another web server on the fire. You meant another server? It's a sort of kind of web server, right? It is doing oh, web requests, but it's not talking HTTP. So it sort of falls okay. between two okay. stools. It doesn't meet my definition, but it's not not a web server. <laughs> anyway, the protocol is called Fast CGI. And it's a very efficient, it's actually a binary protocol. So it's not, the most protocols like HTTP are text-based, right? You can read an HTTP request. Like 402 is actually an HTTP response code, 402 page not found. So HTTP is actually text-based. Fast CGI is binary. It's just ones and zero glop, which means it's really efficient. And so Fast CGI allows servers like Nginx to reach out to something else to execute the PHP code. And the something else for us is called PHP-FPM, which stands for the PHP Fast CGI Process Manager. It's an entire other server that's listening on a different network port. I'm trying to go by memory. I think it's port 7001 on your server. So when when uh, when Bill said I need it would be good to go to PHP FPM because the F is for fast and why would you not want fast? That's what I was thinking. I was sure. Yeah. Fast. That sounds like the good one. Um, at the time, we were still going to be using Apache. It was before we decided to go to to uh, Nginx. But you had to go to PHP FPM with Nginx because Nginx doesn't know how to do that. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah. So Apache has a mod fast CGI. Help? Because Apache has a mod for everything. So Apache has mod fast CGI, so we could talk to PHP FPM. But Nginx can only hand over to someone else. So as soon as okay, we went to right, Nginx, right. we okay. had to have PHP FPM to actually do the PHP part. Okay. So all of this is a long way around of saying, I changed one letter, lamp to lemp. So a quick recap. Before we started, there was one VM which had a bunch of static files and a bunch of PHP code, and it was running... Um... Wait, hang on. Sorry, quick recap. Yeah, sorry. I should read my own show notes in advance, or maybe not write them five minutes before recording. Uh, so a quick recap of all of our changes. So podfeed.com is now being served from one VM that stores the static files and your PHP files, and it serves them to the world through the combined efforts of Nginx with PHP FPM. So those two things together are serving your files, be they static files like your XML feed, your JPEG images that you for your screenshots, or your dynamic stuff, your .php stuff. Your database is gone from that VM. We, it left the building, it's platform as a service, it's an entirely separate thing. So your VM is running the L for Linux, and it was running the A for Apache, but that's now been replaced by Nginx, but you can't pronounce Luxump, right? Not, not going to work. But Nginx is pronounced Engine X, like the word engine, and then the letter X. So oh, yeah, people listening might know that, not know that this word is spelled N-G-I-N-X. Yeah. It's that took me a long time to start spelling right, but now I spell it without thinking about it. But that took a long time. Um, so it has been sort of universally agreed by the open source community that whenever you need to put Nginx in an, in an um, acronym, you just put it in as an E. 
You pretend it's spelled like it said, and you put it in as an E. So you just grab one, a, a letter that's not it, even in the word. Yep, not even in the they word. Could have called it. Could have could have been limp. There's at least an I in in uh, <laughs> Nginx. X. I don't think they felt that sounded like the new hotness. I, I think it would have been very hard to go to a conference and present. I think we should all use the limp server. So get limp your website along. Ooh. Mm. So anyway, limp is where we ended up. So the website is powered by limp. Your actual VM server is only doing the L, the E, and the P. So it's lep, I guess. And the cloud right. is handling the A. Right. So... Actually, I should say for completeness, there's one more little piece of the puzzle here. There's a, a little robot sitting over in the corner, diligently doing its work every 30 days. Uh, there's a wonderful piece of software called CertBot, created by the people at Let's Encrypt. That's a little service that runs on a Linux server, and it just keeps your HTTPS cert up to date entirely automatically. So little old CertBot is sitting on your new server, happily keeping the HTTPS on Podfeet. So that we should. Oh, you just you just checked off an action item. I had a on my to do list to remember to ask you. Do I have to tell Certbot to go renew? Let's encrypt. I will double check that the service is running, but it comes with a service, and you just basically say enable the service, and then the little 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 bot will run periodically and do its magic. So once well, it, I can tell you that it's in my config file, and I didn't put it there, so something ran and shoved it in there. I will double check that it is running automatically, but it probably is. It's okay. probably fine. Um, cool. Yeah. So that's why you get HTTPS for podfeed.com. You can thank the little certbot. The little certbot. Certbots. I, I adore little certbot. Certbot saves me so much hassle. So at this stage, we're almost done, but wait, wait, there's more. So WordPress does a little bit of internal caching, but... In everything we've described so far, we don't actually have a dedicated cache on your website, right? We don't have Nginx configured to be a caching reverse proxy. There's, like I say, a little bit of internal WordPress caching is going on, but ultimately there's no, um, there's no real dedicated caching layer. And the other thing you don't have is a dedicated security layer, right, that I have described so far. There's nothing scanning those incoming HTTP requests before they get to Nginx to make sure Nginx isn't being asked to do naughty things. So they are two shortcomings and two very much interrelated and extremely confusing and difficult to tell apart acronyms are marching into this conversation. And depending on who's selling you, they will use one or both of these. They are Application Delivery Controller, which is ADC, or a web application firewall, which is a WAF. And most products these days do both. And so a lot of people will talk about their ADC slash WAF, just to confuse everyone completely. But the WAF came first. So a WAF is a very specialized reverse proxy. It has one job. It scans the HTTP requests to make sure they're kosher, and then it reverse proxies to your real web server. Hmm. So it's a web server that can only reverse proxy. So the four things a web server can do, the only thing it can do is reverse proxy. But between the input and the reverse proxying, it does a security scan. So that means that your WAF, like WAFs can do all sorts of cool things, but top of the list sort of are things like, it can just block connections from known malicious IPs. 
there are block there are lists maintained by various organizations of known bad actors and a waf can ingest that list once a day and just just block the known bad guys really really it seems to me i mean i've got a changing ip I could release and renew and get a different IP. Exactly, which is why it's a daily update, right? So you have company, you have, you have big virus, you have big security firms will sell you access to their current list and it will get updates depending on the, how much you're paying. You might get updates every hour. Wow. Right? But either way, okay. it's just a little plugin that runs in your WAF and it just basically goes, oh, I know you. You're going nowhere near this website. Good day. That's oh. the first thing it can do. Uh, it can also just look out for known vulnerabilities, right? Like, there's a lot of really common software used all over the place, stuff like PHP MyAdmin or WordPress. And if there's a vulnerability, say, in a particular .php file in WordPress that you exploit by passing in a specific question mark something or other, well, that's a pattern that a, a WAF can just look for. Oh, yeah, I recognize that pattern. That's someone trying to exploit CVE, blah de blah blah Good day. Mm. Not serving you. You're, you're never getting near the web server. The other thing is there's common whoopsies that web developers make. To this day, one of the most common attacks is SQL injection. Like, we've known this is a problem for 30 years, and still there are people writing code today with fresh SQL injection vulnerabilities. So a WAF can just look for a pattern like semicolon drop tables, right, as the old XKCD comic goes. So that, and there's, there's about, there's 10 really common vulnerabilities maintained by, I think it's OWASP maintained this list, but... Basically, they're just these really common mistakes and they'll have a pattern in the URL that's like, yeah, I see what you're doing here. You're trying to do a path traversal. I see what you're doing here. You're trying to do an SQL injection. The WAF can just say, nope, you're not getting as far as the server. You are trying to be naughty and I'm not letting you by the gate. So the server can't be exploited because the WAF stopped it. It never reverse proxied. So far, this WAF thing sounds pretty good. Oh, it is. The other thing they can do is they can just stop brute force attempts against like your login page. It's like, oh, you've you've submitted this form five times in the last minute. You're not submitting it anymore. Goodbye. Hmm. And finally, because the WAF is sitting in front of everything, it can look out for denial of service and DDoS attacks. And it can basically, it's much less work to just check are you okay than it is to fulfill an entire web request. So a DDoS has way less teeth when the amount of work each request has it do is takes like a millisecond versus takes like loads of CPU and RAM. So by the WAF just saying, nope, 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 your server behind can keep serving clients because it's not being overwhelmed. The WAF is just... So the, re- the requests are still coming in, but they aren't being allowed to do anything? Yeah, so if it's a DOS rather than a DDoS, the WAF can very easily... So DOS is just denial of service, so it's coming from a small set of IPs that don't change in the short term. So the WAF can deal with that really easily. It's like, oh, you've asked me 100 questions in the last minute. Goodbye, I'm not talking to you anymore. Whereas a DDoS is coming in from random IPs all over the world. And so a WAF may just basically go, well, I know the backend can handle 100 queries a second. If I get 101 queries, I'm going to randomly throw one away. And what that means is that the people who do get through gets, get a really good service and the people who don't have a glitch and they hit refresh and then they do get through. And so it's like, oh, that was a glitch, huh? But instead of the DDoS taking your website down, the WAF is basically saying, I'm going to let through as much as you can handle, but no more. And so huh. it's still an inconvenience and you're still going to be cranky that you're the subject of a DDoS, but it's not catastrophic. So WAFs are amazing, right? Just by themselves, WAFs are great. But if you think about where the WAF sits in your diagram, 
it's the gatekeeper in front of all of your other infrastructure. What if we gave the WAF some brains to do other stuff too? Then you have like a WAF++. And people decided that you couldn't call something an, a firewall if it was doing app logic. So they wanted a generic term that meant does anything else that's not security, but that we want to do first. And so they just went application delivery controller. ADC. That'll do. Well, like what kind of application? Right. So uh, I have a, an ADC could do. You could if you like by tomorrow, this list will be wrong. Right, an ADC is like one of these catch-all terms for does cool stuff in front of web server. But I have a list of things I could think of just off the top of my head. Implement okay. caching, right? Your ADC can just sit there in front of everything and implement caching. Your ADC can implement some sort of quality of service rules. So you might run, say, right, let's say you have a corporate website and you have a web store. You could you could configure your ADC to say, if things start to get a bit hot here and we're running low on resources, slow the corporate website down. So what if they can't see our About Us page? Put all of your resources towards keeping our store online so we keep taking money. Right? So oh, quality okay. of service. So you can do okay. So that's the kind of that's an ADC's job. Uh, you could also do what's called SSL offloading. So HTTPS is encryption. Encryption is math. Math means CPU cycles. So by having the SSL cert on your web server, you're making your CPU do more work. If you have your ADC sitting at the edge of your network and everything behind the ADC is on a private network, this is really important, it has to be a private network, then you can strip the HTTP off at the gate and have unencrypted HTTP for everything behind. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Right? And what you can actually... But only once it's on that private network. Exactly. Because otherwise it's a massive security hole. You can actually buy hardware cards to do HTTPS. So a lot of ADCs are sold as boxes that you put in your data center, and they have hardware HTTPS. So when they offload the HTTPS, they're not just offloading it from the backend web servers, they're offloading it to hardware. So they're really efficient at doing the HTTPS bit. So that's really big value add from an ADC. They can also do load balancing. So if you need more scaling, well, we talked about, well, you'd have to run your own load balancers. Well, actually, that's a job that an ADC can do. And it can do that in very intelligent ways. So you could have an ADC that basically does geographic-based load balancing. So say, oh, you're coming from Ireland. You can go to that cluster over there. Oh, you're coming from California. You can do that cluster over there. And in fact, your ADC can be distributed across the planet. So you can have one config that's actually physically delivered on, say, 100 VMs sitting in different data centers, but all one IP address. And you just go to the nearest one. You can do really cool things with ADCs. An ADC could sort of be the front end to a content delivery network where it basically looks at the URL and says, ah, that folder is actually on our CDN, not on the web server at all. So I'm going to just send you off to the CDN. And therefore, you're going to get really efficient delivery of your big media files. And another thing uh, an ADC can do is manage the DNS part of your website. Because if a web browser can't look up your website's IP address, it falls at the first hurdle. So actually having really efficient DNS really helps your website run smoothly. So having DNS on your ADC is potentially extremely useful because you could have really fast failover to a secondary cluster if the DNS is sitting right there on the ADC. Ah. So, ah, okay. 
And that's just off the top of my head what I basically came up with as I was finishing the show notes this afternoon. Like, if you can dream of a value add for websites, you would market it as part of your ADC. It's just a catch-all okay. term, right? Application delivery controller. It means nothing because it means nothing. And that's by design, right? You have one. I do. You do. You have a combined uh, ADC slash WAF. It's called Cloudflare. So it's doing all of that stuff. I didn't... Uh, No, you're not paying enough for it to do all of those things it could do, but you are getting some of that. So what are you getting from Cloudflare? Because you... you, We may as well... Like, one of the cool things about Cloudflare is they're a freemium service. So Cloudflare offer a nice service for you know, small to medium websites for free and they make their money by offering amazing services to really big companies. So they don't make their money off your privacy. They're freemium, not freepy, as I, as I would call it, mm-hmm. right? Right. Uh, so what you're getting out of your free package is first and foremost, you are getting a really efficient DNS proxy. So they are, ma- so your actual DNS servers are coming from your registrar, so they're GoDaddy DNS servers, and GoDaddy are okay, but yeah, they're not the world's most efficient DNS servers. But no one cares because what's actually telling the world your IP address is Cloudflare. And Cloudflare is caching the answers. So you still use your control panel in GoDaddy to make changes, but Cloudflare just caches it all. And Cloudflare's DNS right. servers are spread across the world through their CDN, and they're amazingly robust, amazingly fast. And they give Cloudflare the ability to do load balancing if in the future you decide that you actually you've grown so much you need to have three VMs doing your web server. Well, Cloudflare could manage splitting up that traffic because the IP address would point to Cloudflare and Cloudflare would then intelligently spread the load across your three servers. So I'm this is going to throw a real monkey wrench Mm. into your ability to finish, but the... Other piece in the middle of this, and it's backing us up a ways, is that we did the server changes all with uh, DigitalOcean, where I've got a VM that we doubled in size that didn't didn't solve the problem. But then we moved the database to a dedicated database server, and we still had trouble. Uh, but then we did uh, we <laughs> Bill did a lot of work to uh, move the the web server onto the same private network within DigitalOcean. Mm-hmm giving it a floating IP. Yes. And this is where I have no idea what a floating IP is, but that was cool because now they could be on the same network and now all of my database traffic is within this private network on DigitalOcean. What does that have to do with the DNS and and this that you're talking about? Okay. Cloudflare? So nothing. Fr- right? It's not nothing. No, not nothing. Okay. So imagine you're Firefox, right? Little red, your little red icon, you have a nice tail, right? You're Firefox. And you, you want to go, right? Your master has typed into you to go to podfeet.com. The first thing you do is a DNS request. And you updated your DNS configuration to say that the authoritative DNS server for podfeet.com is Cloudflare. So you actually right. ask Cloudflare what the IP address is of podfeet.com. And the answer right. Cloudflare gives is Cloudflare. Cloudflare says that Cloudflare is hosting your website. And so Firefox talks to Cloudflare. Cloudflare then does its WAF. So it says, is this part of a distributed denial of service attack? Is this a known vulnerability? Is this malicious in any way? All that WAF stuff, all of that WAF stuff you're getting for free from Cloudflare. So Cloudflare has done that. And then it says, okay, you pass. 
Cloudflare then goes and looks in its internal config and says, ah, okay, the real DNS for potv.com is this IP address that's been configured in GoDaddy. That's your floating IP address. So Cloudflare then reaches back to the floating IP address. The floating IP address is our router sitting in DigitalOcean. And that router does a NAT to the private IP address of your VM. Okay. So DigitalOcean has filtered the traffic. DigitalOcean has passed it back to the floating IP. Then the floating IP has been translated through NAT to your private IP. So, so I've got three IP addresses. Yeah. Then. Yes, you do. But as far as and Firefox and is concerned, podfeed.com is Cloudflare. So if you ping podfeed.com, you get a 172 dot blah, blah, blah. Cloudflare. But that's, that's not my IP address. Correct. My IP address is 136 dot something. Correct, but actually it's... But is the 136 is actually the floating IP? There's another one behind that? Yeah, there's a private IP address. There's a 10 dot something address probably, or a 192.168 address. Oh, oh, that kind of private. Oh, okay. Wow, that part I didn't understand. Yeah, so that's what the floating IP address is. It's a public IP address for all of the stuff in your private network. So it's like your home router, right? You're, you have one public right, right. IP address for your house and lots okay. of stuff behind it. Well, it's, you have one public IP address for your virtual private network. That's your floating IP. Interesting. Now, in terms of the order that we did things, we did the Cloudflare thing fairly early on trying to figure out, was it a denial of service attack? Correct. Because, well, the easiest way to answer the question of, is this malicious, is to ask an expert. Cloudflare know a lot more about this than I do. So once we routed it through Cloudflare, we could use Cloudflare's control panel to see whether or not you were under attack. And the answer was, nope, you're just popular. So the... Yeah, again, a surprise. Um, good to know. Um, well, it's kind of flattering, right? Yay, my website's broken because I'm popular. Oh, but my website's broken. <laughs> well, actually, there was a point where Bill said, you know, you really, if you're a, a medium to large business, you really should be on PHP FPM. If you're a small business, you're, it's actually a little more efficient to be on PHP CGI. And I said, which one am I? I don't know. How, what, what, how big is medium? How big is small? How big is, I mean, I know I'm not, uh, you know, Sally's left-handed wingnut supply store, but I'm also not the New York Times. So what am I? And he went back and studied something and came back and said, Allison, you're medium. And I went, yay. Yeah, but really, right, what you had before is the perfect small setup. It was too small. Ergo, you right. became medium. The moment your yeah. website collapsed, is because you stopped being small. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It. Uh, the other thing that's kind of fun about that is if your site is slow, Google doesn't index you very high. No. So now that it's now that it's faster, it could likely cause it to become bigger. Yeah, and the reason which Google, is an interesting thing. Yeah, the reason Google doesn't index you high is because Google indexes you by making lots and lots of HTTP requests to get your content. If your website is slow, you are holding up the Google bot. That bot could be off indexing fast websites, but instead it's sitting going do, 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 do. <laughs> so it doesn't like you. So it will index you less often and it will punish you by putting you down the rankings because you're making it work harder. Right, right. So, yeah. Well, this has been this has been really interesting, Bart. I knew a, a fair amount of it, but I didn't definitely didn't have the depth in a lot of this that uh, that you've given us today. Good, good. So I just want to actually just be sure to make sure I said it. So what you're getting from Cloudflare is caching, you're getting all of the WAF stuff, and you're getting the DNS uh, proxy. Okay. So you have, you have some ADC features. 
Not, you know, but you get it for free. So, hey, for free, it's pretty nice ADC features. Excellent. Did you did you put uh, Bart B behind Cloudflare? I did, because I always do it on my own site first so that I know what buttons to push. <laughs> um, and I've had my database in the cloud for quite some years now. Yeah. Uh, because I got fed up of managing my own database server. It's like, oh, my VM's out of RAM again. I'm not throwing money on it. I'm putting it over there. Um, and of course, the sky is now the limit because this new architecture is way more scalable than what you were at before. So basically, you were at the end of the road in terms of a one VM setup, and you are now at the start of the road in terms of a cloud higher, in terms of a cloud deployment. So you've gone from having run out of runway to being at the start of a very, very long runway. So you can become really popular and we won't have to redesign this in a major way. We can just expand from where we are. Oh, good. Yeah, so become popular. Good. <laughs> <laughs> have no fear, right? Exactly. I think it's a great place to be. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um. I'm hoping that, I mean, to some extent, this was very specific to you, Alison, and to some extent, this is like me basically going, well, I need to explain all this to Alison, so why not just have an audience so I can kill two birds with the one stone? Uh, but also, I do think this was important for understanding where we're going in programming by stealth. At the very, very, very least, I'm hoping a few, alg- a few acronyms make more sense to people now. Right, and and I think the parts about understanding the the procedures and and the activities of these different servers is going to be important to what we're going to do it is absolutely it is exactly so yeah so anyway there we are pbs a a very adjacent um unless you have any more questions for me that is all i has in the show notes i think that's good thanks this was fun excellent well folks until next time happy computing if you learn as much from bart each week as i do i'd like you to go over to let's-talk.ie And press one of the buttons over there to help support him. He does 98% of the work here. I'm just the stooge that listens to him and asks the dumb questions. If you go over to lets-talk.ie, you can support him on Patreon. You can donate via PayPal, or you can use one of his referral links. I really hope you'll go over and help him out. In the meantime, you can contact me at Podfeed or check out all of the shows we do over there over at podfeed.com. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.